We'll be looking at John chapter 3 today, and in John chapter 3, we are going to have, we're going to be confronted with uh, some major teachings, some very large things. Many of these verses are very familiar to you. Uh, many times you'll see in, in public events uh, that are not related to the gospel whatsoever, somebody holding up a sign that says John 3.16. And it's because that, that verse in the midst of this great chapter has such a concise description of the gospel truth. And so many people find it, you know, let's put that up there. Let's get cu people curious about it so that they go and see uh, maybe what that is all about. Well, that's kind of what the chapter is about. The chapter is about curiosity. It's about someone coming to find out what is this Jesus all about? What is he really doing? And, and what might it mean to us? See, John has paraded to us some great big titles for Jesus. And in each and every one of them, as we looked at the Logos or the Christ or the, the fact that Jesus was the only unique son, that he's this one that gives signs, that he's the Lamb of God, we find every single one of these things has monumental meaning to it. It's like John is heaping superlative upon superlative to make his point. And we get now to a chapter where uh, he is called a rabbi by Nicodemus, and we're going to find out to call him rabbi is, is just an incredible understatement of what Jesus did and what he taught. But the difficulty here is that many people will agree, you know, rabbi most often means great one or, or teacher, and most people are willing to agree, yeah, Jesus was some kind of a teacher. He was a prophet, you know, and, and some will even agree he was sent by God, but many then will stop agreeing when we start to suggest, well, he's actually the divine son of God. He's actually God himself, and he came in the flesh. And then that's when people kind of hesitate and say, whoa, 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 maybe ready to you know, accept him as a good teacher, as a rabbi, but that's about as far as I go. What we're going to see in this passage, however, is we're going to take a look at what it is this good teacher, what it is this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, was teaching. And then we'll re-ask the question, is it possible that he was just a good teacher? And so that will give us an opportunity to really kind of bring these things together and look at them and look at them through the eyes of this Nicodemus who has this experience with Jesus here in John chapter 3. So today we'll be looking at that, and today's point is very simply this, and I've put it in the notes on the bulletin. Jesus teaches, now notice I put that in the present tense, Jesus teaches that faith in him is the only way to escape the wrath of God and have eternal life. And so I think with that, it's an important introduction to the verses that we're going to take a look at. Now, as we read, I want you to look at verses 1 through 15. There's clearly a dialogue taking place between Jesus and Nicodemus. It's really verse 316 and following that it's not clear where this dialogue stops. At some point, it transitions to John, the gospel writer, the narrator. And But we know with the inspiration of Scripture that whether it's in the red letters or the black letters, it carries the same weight. For that reason, many people don't like the red letter Bibles because they suggest some words are more important than others. But what we're going to see here in John chapter 3 is 
is this transition from Jesus and his conversation with Nicodemus to take things a step further, to really teach about why Jesus came and how it is that we can be a part of the kingdom and have eternal life. So let's go to the scriptures together and take a look at what we can learn here. Starting in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 21. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you bless this reading of your scriptures, that you help me to rightly divide it. You help all of us, Lord, to rightly experience what you would have us to know and to understand from these. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work of Jesus. We thank you for your servant Nicodemus who came asking questions, seeking and knocking, as it were, at the door. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we have, uh, first of all, a man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus, and we uh, see that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. And a Pharisee, uh, we'll study much more about that this evening, about what the Pharisees, who they were, what they believed. You can learn a great deal about them from the Gospels themselves. And the Pharisees were kind of a mixed bag of people, but basically believed very strongly in following the not only the letter of the law, but following the traditions that had been 
kind of formed around the law through the centuries and, and the traditions that they had as a people. So they were uh, very serious about following those things, about believing those things. They believed all the scriptures. They believed in an afterlife. They believed in a resurrection. There were many things that they had right. And so it's, it's difficult just to set them up as a bad guy. You know, what the world craves today is bad guys and good guys. And they want to see it black and white. And they want to see it easily separated. We can't do that with the Pharisees. Example number one is Nicodemus. Because we see Nicodemus sincerely coming with questions and eventually following Jesus. And we'll explain why that is a bit later. But it describes him as a ruler, which means he's not just a Pharisee. He's also probably on their council, on the Sanhedrin, that had charge of ruling the people of Israel. Now, we know Rome was ultimately in charge, but Rome allowed the Jews some self-governance, especially in matters of religion. And so Nicodemus is part of this, this ruling class of, of elite Jews who are given charge to see that the faith and practice of the Jewish people is proper and, and right. Now, the interesting thing, as you see in verse 2, is that he comes by night. Now, we're seeing in this gospel so far that many of the rulers are already opposing Jesus. Traveling at night for a man like this, for a wealthy man, a man of position, would be unusual because it would be a little risky. That's when a lot of crimes happen at night, and they didn't have the kind of strict patrols and things, nor the benefit of 2,000 years of Christianity to calm the streets. And so it was uh, a little risky to come late at night to, to see somebody. And so it looks like what Nicodemus was hoping for was a secret meeting with Jesus because Jesus has already had some public ministry. It's, it's summarized in the previous chapter where he's in the temple and he turns the tables over and everything like that. But all that week, he's there in Jerusalem and he's doing ministry and he's giving signs and he's teaching publicly. And so Nicodemus would have had these opportunities to ask him these questions in public, but he doesn't. He comes at night, and the implication with which the way he comes to him is that what Jesus is doing is undeniably of God, and he makes that clear just by saying this, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do uh, the signs that you do unless God is with him. So that's just, that is refreshing logic that we could use a little bit of today. Because he just puts two and two together. Okay, this guy is healing people. This guy is doing signs and wonders. He's obviously from God. And we're going to see not all the leaders felt like Nicodemus did. Some of them accused him of having a demon and doing these miracles by the workings of Satan. But he just puts two and two together very simply. Okay, you're obviously from God. So he acknowledges that right up front. In other words, he's saying, I've come to you acknowledging that you've come from God, and the implication is, and he doesn't just come out and say it, tell me who you are. Tell me what this is about. And he would be most curious about, are you the one, are you the Messiah, the Christ, who's going to come and inaugurate a new kingdom, a new kingdom of Israel, a new kingdom of God? That would be his logical inquiry. And that is what Jesus answers. 
You'll notice Nicodemus doesn't really ask a question in verse 2. And in verse 3, Jesus says, answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, and etc., etc. So Jesus' answer is concerning the kingdom. And Jesus has a tendency, I believe, in Scripture to answer every question. Whether directly or indirectly, it gets answered. So Nicodemus comes, acknowledges he's from God. Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, in verse 4, we have kind of an interesting thing here. In your translation, it probably says born again. And it might have a footnote that says born from above. Because this word has a range of meaning that would include either one. And so the fact that Nicodemus is trying to clarify what Jesus means is understandable because he's kind of asking him, did you mean born again or did you mean born from above? And so that's why he phrases it this way. How can one be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus knows that's not what Jesus means. He just says it such a way, you know, because obviously this can't be. You know, that, that one could be born again like this. And Jesus answers, answers him whether he means from above or not. Do you realize he answers him quite directly about that? Look at verse 5. He says, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. It was understood that the, the bearing, the, the being born of water was your physical birth. The, the woman's water breaks at some point during the labor. And so that is, you know, they call that being born of the water. They understood in those days that indeed the, the child is in the womb in water. And so he says, you've got to be born of water and the spirit. Well, when you say something is done by the spirit and the implication and the education to, to Nicodemus would be, this means of heaven. This means something done by God. This means from above. Jesus plainly sets him straight. I mean from above. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. So you notice the first time he says, you have to be born from above in order to see the kingdom of God. And then he says, you have to be born from above to enter the kingdom of God. So those are very important distinctions. In other words, nothing's going to happen concerning you and the kingdom of God until this being born again happens. And so this is his answer to this. He further goes on in verse 6 to clarify, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Did you notice this verse is in parallel to the prior one? Verse 5, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So you'll have people say, well, being born of water and the spirit means baptism. You have to be baptized to be saved. And I'd say, you have to be baptized, but I would stop there. It's commanded to be baptized. But many people claim that verse and say, that means that baptism's a necessary work in your salvation. But Jesus clearly here straightens it out and he says, no, I'm talking about what's done in the flesh, or being born in the flesh. I'm talking about the physical birth. And he clears it up in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And Jesus here endorses humanity 
as a duality, that we are flesh and spirit or body and spirit. And people will say, well, what about soul? Well, the New Testament kind of uses soul and spirit interchangeably. And there's not enough information there to make a distinction to be able to say, this part is the soul, this part is the spirit. Though many people try to do that. Mankind is part flesh, mankind is part spirit, the two united in the whole person. And Jesus is saying you have to experience the physical birth, you have to be born into the flesh, but you also have to be born from above, that is by the spirit. And so this is important, and this is tough, and this is something new to Nicodemus. This is new ground to him. Much he understands, much he does not. That's why in verse 9 he just generally says, how can these things be? Can you please explain this more? How is it that one can be born of the Spirit? He's honestly struggling with the teaching. And this is where I really have a lot of respect for Nicodemus because he comes to Jesus, he asks questions. He's unconcerned here in the presence of Jesus of looking like a fool. He addresses Jesus as rabbi, acknowledging that he has something to teach him. And Jesus even gives him a gentle rebuke to establish this position. He says, are you a teacher of Israel? You don't really understand these things? And the way his question is phrased, it's anticipating the, yeah, I don't understand these things. And that gives me a lot of respect for Nicodemus because here he is, he wants to know. And, and Jesus goes on to answer him, and we'll get more to that later. But this starts a process with Nicodemus. This starts a journey with him that you can trace through the Gospel of John. We meet him again in John chapter 7. In verses 45 to 52, where the Pharisees and the chief priests are kind of arguing among themselves, and they had sent people out to arrest Jesus, but he kind of confounded the people that went to arrest him. And the, the officers come back and, and they say, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd does not know the law is accursed. This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, so he's mentioned here in chapter 7, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, first of all, they were wrong about the Galilee thing. And secondly, they kind of jump on Nicodemus just for asking the question, just for essentially paraphrasing the law to them. Because Nicodemus says, you know, look, does, does our law condemn without first really giving him a hearing, learning what it is that he does? And they just turn on him. You one of them too? The development of Nicodemus. But Nicodemus still doesn't come forward. And it's interesting in John chapter 12, kind of in the midst of all this excitement after the raising of Lazarus and coming into the Passover week when Jesus was eventually arrested and crucified, 
the leaders are mentioned again, not Nicodemus specifically, but the leaders are mentioned, and they say, and, and it says, John says, many of the leaders believed, but didn't come forward for fear of losing their position or their place. So maybe Nicodemus is in that crowd. He he believes, but he's not, you know, he already got one beat down in the in the public assembly here, and Maybe he's not ready yet to come forward. But what happens? Jesus is ultimately tried quite unfairly and presumably brought before some of the council members. Was Nicodemus there or not at those trials? I don't know. But here's what we do know. After Jesus is crucified, we hear of Nicodemus once again in John chapter 19. After Jesus was crucified, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews... Asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Nicodemus wasn't the only one. Joseph of Arimathea was another of these leaders that, that believed, but then, you know, didn't act upon it until they saw Jesus crucified. And then Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus risk everything to give Jesus a proper burial. Because we see how the Pharisees and the chief priests and the others who rejected Jesus, we see how they treat those who questioned them, those who followed Jesus, those who would come after and preach in the name of Jesus. They would arrest them. They would harass them. They would eventually persecute them to the point of death. But here Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come out publicly because see the tradition, I don't know if you knew this, after crucifixion, what the Romans did as part of the insult to injury of crucifixion is once someone was crucified, their body was basically thrown in a pile back behind where they, they crucified people so that they didn't even get a proper burial, that the birds of the air would come and have their way. This was the plan for Jesus as well till two men come and intervene and get a tomb for him and find a place. So as we talk about Nicodemus, the Pharisee who comes to Jesus, this is the one we're talking about. And this is where his journey began. And he's asking Jesus questions. He's like, I don't get it. And maybe sometimes you feel like that. Maybe sometimes you feel like you come before the word of God. You hear the word of God. You read the word of God. You're like, I just don't get it. Now, what's the Nicodemus principle? Just keep trying. Just keep hanging in there. And at some point it will be like, you know what? I can't take it anymore. I'm stepping forward. I'm embracing this because this is right and true. So that's what we see about the Pharisee. What do we see about this rabbi? This rabbi, Jesus, this word that he is addressed by Nicodemus by at the beginning of the chapter there, it means great one or teacher. It started off just meaning very simply great one, 
But as the uh, first century went on, and, and John, we think, wrote his gospel very late in the first century, uh, being one of the, the few eyewitnesses remaining, he used this word, and the word by then had come to be known as teacher of great respect, a somebody who had a following of people, someone who was teaching the things concerning God inside the context of Judaism. And so as we see it here, it's very important that he is called by Nicodemus as rabbi. Let's go back to the scripture and look at that just momentarily. This was a reasonable term for, for Jesus even at this time because he was teaching and he did have a following of disciples. And the word disciple just means learner. You could actually translate the word in your Bible if you wanted to is learner. And very early on, this was attributed to him. When we look at uh, in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, we see very early, and Sermon on the Mount seems to be very early in his ministry. At the end of it, it remarks this about him. Matthew says, for he was teaching them as one who had authority. See, they were astonished at what he was saying because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The scribes and the other, and the Pharisees, the ones that were rabbis, the other teachers of Israel, they had a tendency to quote other teachers. They had a tendency to quote, well, so-and-so says this or so-and-so says that. And you would go to them and ask them a question, what does it mean that this happened in Scripture? And they would say, well, Rabbi so-and-so said this and Rabbi so-and-so says that, you know, and, and quote different people. Jesus comes and he says, you've heard it said, but I say. And this astonished people. And this amazed them. And this got Jesus in trouble with the authorities. And that's why they challenge him. By what authority are you saying these things? By what authority are you doing these signs? Because he, he established the authority of himself. So Jesus is truly called a rabbi here, and he is deserving of the title. But most importantly then, since he is a rabbi, and we have established that, what is it that this particular rabbi was teaching? What can we learn from the things that he was saying, and how can they be explained? Well, first of all, he taught about the kingdom of God. See, in the scriptures and the messianic expectations that were being compiled by the people at the time of the coming of Jesus was this expectation that this would be a, a particular one would come in the line of David, an anointed one, a Messiah. And it's because of the covenant that God had with David, and it's because of the many Psalms and the many prophets that spoke of one in the line of David coming. And that he, this one would come and establish a kingdom forever. That was the covenant with David. That's the gist of many of the prophecies is that this kingdom would be, as it says in the book of Daniel, an everlasting kingdom. And there would be in this everlasting kingdom a special blessing for those who were in it. The implication is they would also be everlasting. They would be the righteous they would be the purified ones, the selected ones, who would enjoy this eternal kingdom of the Messiah of David forever. And the Pharisees understood and believed that much. 
and they believed in an afterlife and they believed in eternal life. They even believed in a resurrection. But they didn't understand about the new birth. And that's why Jesus gives Nicodemus something new to build on. He goes, I know you know about the kingdom of God, but the way to see the kingdom of God, the way to enter the kingdom of God is to be born again. And then he starts mixing in the idea of eternal life. I look for a moment at verses 15 and 16. These are familiar verses to us, but he transitions from speaking in terms of the kingdom to speaking in terms of eternal life. Uh, he says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he repeats it in verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, and adds that, it's not going to perish, but rather is going to have eternal life. And that is kind of a twofold meaning to eternal life. It means, yeah, life that doesn't end, but life also that's quite abundant. Life perhaps as it was intended. See, built inside of each and every human being is this understanding that there's something more. This understanding that our mere time here and our toil and our difficulty that we spend, that we exist here on this planet, it's, it's number one, it's way too short. And number two, our minds and our thoughts and our spirit says there's something more than just getting by and surviving. And that's there by the design of God because we are made in his image and he made our conscience to bear witness of the truth that indeed there is something more. And so Jesus talks in terms of this something more, in terms of this eternal life. And he talks about the eternal life in the Gospel of John more than he talks about the kingdom. You'll read about the kingdom quite a bit in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John says, well, let's, let's connect this and really put this in perspective. We're talking about eternal life. If you're in the kingdom, you have eternal life. So when we're talking about becoming part of the kingdom or getting eternal life, it's one and the same. The question that we have to have and the question and the answer that Jesus gives to Nicodemus first is, how do you enter in then? How do you enter into the kingdom? How is it that you obtain this eternal life? And as he said in verse 3, you must be born again or born from above. Now this is tricky because this is not something you can do. By saying this one word in the tense that he said it in, the way that he said it, he is implying a very important thing about being born again. And that important thing is this, you cannot do it. It is something initiated by heaven. It's why it is born from above. The second thing he does to show this to be true is that it's of the Spirit. And so this passage is emphatic that this is something that is done to you. Now the Pharisees, and this is important matter with Nicodemus, because the Pharisees fell into the common trap of humanity and says formulating their religion according to a recipe or a formula for getting right with God. 
And the intention was correct because they were looking for the right formula to be Messiah ready. They were reading the prophets. They said, hey, the prophets are talking about this eternal kingdom. The people in this eternal kingdom are righteous. Therefore, we have to be righteous to enter into it. It's actually fair logic. And it's actually true because Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes or Pharisees, you'll not enter in. But they missed one thing. They missed the hinge point. They missed how it is that someone becomes righteous enough. They were trying it by following the law, by following their traditions. And, and this is what virtually every other religion on the planet does. They follow rules. They follow traditions in order to get something from God, in order to be something to God, in order to be recognized, in order to be accepted by God. This is the way it has been done. And this is why it's so difficult for them to do this. That salvation is not something you secure by your good works, but something bestowed upon you. Membership in the kingdom is not about you, but it's about the king who decrees it. So how is it then that it's entered into? If, it, if it's born from above, then, then what's the trigger? How is it that you know that you're going to be born from above? And Jesus then begins to talk in terms of faith. Believing. They're the same word in the scripture. And he starts, and there's belief, and I'll highlight it here for you, shows up quite a bit in this passage. And the first time it shows up is in verse 12, when he says, if I've told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? In other words, first of all, let's establish this. If you're not listening this far, why should I go any further? But Jesus does go further, which is a very good sign for Nicodemus. And then he comes down here, and he gives this illustration of lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. You have to go see the book of Numbers to really understand that. And I'll explain it a bit later. But he says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is, whoever believes in Jesus has eternal life. He repeats the concept in 16. He repeats it emphatically in 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And so this word becomes very important. How is it that one enters into the kingdom? How is it one is born again? It's through faith. It's through faith. Now, faith must have an object. And what is the object of that faith? The object of that faith is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Look back here in verse 14. And this is when he talks about the serpent being lifted up. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In Numbers chapter 21, there's an incident that happens where the, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and they're complaining all the time. And they're complaining and they're grumbling, finally bring judgment, the judgment of God upon them. And God sends upon them fiery serpents that were biting them and those who were bitten were dying. And they go, Moses, you've got to talk to God about this. Because they already lost their right to talk to God. They, they assign Moses to it, which is another tendency of human beings in their religion. So Moses goes and he talks to God about it. And God's like, okay, here's what you do. You make yourself a serpent of bronze. 
you take that serpent and you put it on a pole and you lift it up where people can see it. And then anybody who has been bitten, all they have to do is look at it and they will be healed and they will live. And Jesus comes along and says, that's me. The words he uses here when he says lift it up, it was a euphemism in their time for crucifixion. He says, even so must the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, and we'll get to Son of Man at some point in the series, be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. You see, what God gave to Moses, the solution for their problem, was a test of faith. This was a matter of faith because word would spread as it would be declared by Moses and everything. If you've been bitten, look over here where the serpent is up on the pole, look at the serpent and you'll be healed. Well, guess what? When you heard that message, you believed it or you didn't believe it. And if you got bitten by a snake, if you believed the message that looking upon the serpent would heal you, what did you do? You looked upon the serpent. So this is a test of faith. And Jesus is saying, this is how it is with me. I'm going to be lifted up and those that will look at me and believe, those are the ones who will be born again. Those are the ones who enter into the kingdom. Those are the ones who have eternal life. Jesus lifts himself up, so to speak, as the only way to be saved. And I, I got to be, and we'll talk about that more in a minute, about what this means. But back to our, our point of the day, our point of today to summarize. We'll get back to the PowerPoint here. Um, Jesus teaches That faith in him is the only way to escape the wrath of God and have eternal life. And let me ask you this question. Can he be a good teacher and be wrong about any part of this? Because read the passage again. It's clearly what he taught. I've merely summarized it in a, in a sentence here. And there's more to it than this sentence. I sought to get a good summary. If he's wrong about any single part, then he's not a good teacher. Which means he's an error or he's a liar. Which is it? That's a question for us to ponder. It's a question that C.S. Lewis pondered. C.S. Lewis pondered this question and wrote in a, in a book called Mere Christianity. Maybe you're familiar with it. Hopefully I have it here in a PowerPoint. No, I don't have the quote there. But listen to the quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. That's what Jesus has done. Is he's laid this, this unmistakable challenge out there. 
And that's part of the reason some of the leadership reacted so violently to him because Jesus was so inflexible because he's like, it's me, it's all about me, it centers around me, I'm the coming king, it is me that determines entry into the kingdom. And they couldn't accept that. So based on this, and what Jesus taught here just in John chapter 3, and if you know no other chapter of the New Testament really, really well, learn this one. And whenever you're talking to somebody about faith in Jesus Christ, open to John chapter 3. It will help you one way or another. Make it your go-to if you don't already have another. Because when you read that chapter, you will not accept any patronizing nonsense that Jesus was anything less than what he said he was, the eternal Son of God. You will not accept any nonsense, oh, he's just a good teacher, oh, he's one among many prophets, oh, Christianity is one of many ways. Jesus didn't leave any of those options open to us. He laid it out there as all or nothing. So what do we do with this today? Well, we can do several things with it. First of all, we want to be teachable. I don't know what your course is and what your path has been to where you are today or where you will go. But for an example, trace Nicodemus's path. Because God takes every, everyone through some kind of a process to prepare them for that moment that he calls you to the Son, that you're born again. At that moment, suddenly you'll never be the same, but it is a process. Some of us in the room were dragged through other faiths, other denominations, other ideas, other lifestyles. And that course was exactly the course we needed when God brought us to the point, the decision point, the, the critical point. Maybe for Nicodemus that point was when Jesus was on the cross and he took in all that everyone had said and all that Jesus had said and said, that's enough making my choice. Wherever you are in that process, my encouragement is this. Stick with it. Ask questions. Keep tabs on Jesus like Nicodemus did. He watched things unfold. He waited to see what would happen. Follow the story and pray for help and get the help of a believer. In the book of Acts, there's a man traveling along the road going home from worshiping in Jerusalem. This man was an Ethiopian, and he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and God sends one of his deacons down there to minister to the man, and he's reading from the scroll, and he's not understanding it. And he asks a really profound question, you know, and the guy asks, what are you reading? He goes, well, I'm reading the scroll of Isaiah. And he's like, well, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I understand it unless someone explains it to me? Because you might have the Bible and you might have YouTube and you might have all these resources available to you, but until you're sitting face to face across the table from a believing Christian, you're probably not going to get this stuff. That's what Nicodemus did. He risked it. I'm going to go see him at night. He risked maybe his safety. He definitely risked his reputation. If it had gotten out that he went and saw this man, he went and he did it. Stick with it. Be teachable. Be open-minded. Open to Christ.
Secondly, believe. We need to let go of our own understandings and trust Jesus Christ because our logic is tainted. Did you notice that Jesus' implication of saying we must be born from above, that we must be born also of the Spirit in addition to the flesh, suggests that we are without Christ spiritually dead. Paul says it plainly in writing to a church. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So what are the chances that from being spiritually dead, we're going to come to proper reasoning about Jesus? That's why we have the scriptures. That's why we have believers and their assignment is to be ambassadors for Christ. Our whole context is corrupted. So we have to let go of our own understandings and we have to trust Jesus Christ. We have to obey Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, which says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He will make your path straight. And then thirdly, of course, be born again. This uh, object lesson from Numbers chapter 21 I want to put this into a context that maybe we'll understand. Because Moses lifts this thing up, a serpent on a pole, which up to that point, a serpent was something considered unclean. A serpent, of course, was what tempted, you know, what Satan used to tempt Eve in the garden. And so this is unusual. God says, make a serpent, put it on a pole. Well, from hindsight, we understand that when Jesus was on that cross, he defeated Satan and the other rulers and authorities. And so now it makes sense to us. It certainly didn't make sense to them. But can you imagine, you know, th this happening in today and, and someone makes this brown serpent, everybody's being bit by snakes and they hold it up on a pole. Hey, you know, just, just look to the serpent and you'll be healed. Yeah, whatever. Someone gets bit. Dude, I know what to do. I saw it on YouTube. What you got to do is you got you to suck out the venom. Suck out the venom, dude. It's like, man, I'm not touching you. <laughs> suck your own venom out. You know, I can't reach it. It's on my foot. Well, it's too bad. You know what you got to do? Oh, I know what you got to do here. Put this herbal poultice on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It stings, but it'll be okay. I, my grandma used to do this all the time. Everyone who ever got snake bit in my family got one of these poultices. Well, did any of them live? We got to tie it off. We got to put a tourniquet on your leg in order to stop the spread of the venom. Yeah, but, but Moses said, just look at the serpent. Don't you see that's exactly what people are doing with their religion? They're saying, no, 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 I got to do this and I got to do that. No, 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 I got to straighten this up and I got to get this right and I got to follow these rules and I got to be this kind of person. And Jesus is just like, look up here. Look at me and believe in me and stop trying to do it your own self and stop trying to deal with the attack of the serpent, the crippling and deadly attack of the serpent that we succumb to to try to save yourself. Look to me, and I will save. This is what it means to trust in Christ. Let's pray.
Father God, we thank you so much for lifting up your Son, that all who look upon him in faith will be saved. I pray this day, Lord, that you have worked in the hearts of all those who are here. For those who don't know you, Lord, I, I believe and I pray that you are drawing them to yourself, that you will, will give them the birth from above. For those, Lord, who already know you, I pray that you've equipped them to better understand and better explain and better engage people with the gospel like our Lord did. I pray, Lord, that you'll get, grant us understanding of these things, even more so in hindsight. Give us all the courage, then, to be ambassadors, to reach upward to Christ, to reach downward to those who need your salvation. Lord, help us in this endeavor. Help us to glorify your name. Help us to be pleasing to you. We thank you so much for your great ministry in the work of Jesus Christ, for the salvation that flows from Zion, for the goodness that you have bestowed upon all creation, Lord, that you have made the offer of Jesus Christ, that you are assembling together for yourself people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, a huge multitude of people that will enjoy you forever. And it's because of the work of your Son. And we praise you for him. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.